When you need to restore flow in an ischemic limb, there's no time to lose. You need the Pounce Thrombectomy System. The Pounce System from Sermonics is a purpose-built percutaneous device for removing thrombus and embolus in the peripheral vasculature. No capital equipment or aspiration needed. Just grab, go, and restore flow. It's simple. With the Pounce System, you place the basket wire distal to the clot, place the collection funnel proximal to the clot, pull back to collect the clot in the funnel, and retract the system through your guide sheath. The secret sauce? The Pounce Funnel is designed to macerate and dehydrate the clot, allowing you to remove even large amounts of material through a 7-front sheath. Visit PounceSystem.com to learn how physicians have used the device to accelerate on-table flow restoration while reducing use of thrombolytics. Pounce Thrombectomy. Strike quickly to capture and remove clot. This week on the Back Table Podcast. Well, what they don't do in Washington is they don't take into consideration how much money that it, that has saved the system by not going to the hospital. They're just looking at, hey, man, these guys are overusing these codes. And so there's there's definitely not a fair playing field, where, which is where lo- the lobbying would come in to try to explain what's really going on, is that we're moving this to another lower cost center with a great patient care model, and look how much money we're saving the overall system. But yes, there are bad players, and we need to police those stringently. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com, and pretty much any podcast platform out there. Boston Scientific's Alluvia drug-eluting peripheral stent is a purpose-built stent platform with a polymer specifically designed to treat SFA disease. In two head-to-head trials, Alluvia demonstrated superior clinical outcomes compared to other therapies and is setting a new standard of care in SFA stenting. To learn more about how Alluvia can help you take the fight to PAD, visit bostonscientific.com slash Alluvia. That's E-L-U-V-I-A from Boston Scientific. We have some recurring guests on today. I want to give a warm welcome to Jim Melton and Blake Parsons. Been on the show multiple times at this point, and we're going to talk about an important topic today. We're going to talk a little bit about navigating reimbursement cuts in, in the OBL and ASC space. So real quick, before we jump into the meat of it, get, you know, guys, just kind of brief intro where you're at. Any new, new developments in the practice since the last time we had you on? Jim, start with you. Yeah, we're, we're real excited about, uh, I mean, we, we kind of got to a point with growth and uh, also just mitigating uh, risk uh, going forward with uh, Different different things that are going on in the industry as far as how the government has looked at you know our space uh, uh, in conglomerate and uh, decided to partner uh, you know with a private equity firm. So we're excited about that. We believe in the model uh, a thousand percent. Uh, still as independent as we were before. We run our own shop, so we made sure that the partners that we chose were uh, valued uh, that model, and uh, they basically. Uh, we continue to run our own place and and just have capital to expand the platform across the country. So we're we're excited about that, and uh, also excited about uh, you know trying to partner with like minds and like practices so we can uh, serve the the rural communities and uh, access to care like you know we started the model. So 
we're excited about yeah that. well that's big news congrats i didn't realize that so that, yeah so when did when did that happen fourth quarter last year okay how long did it take to like from you know the time you guys kind of met each other like the dating process like how did how did could you tell us a little bit about that yeah so it was you know it was covid so it probably was you know exacerbated a little bit because yeah. all of the things that you need to get a deal done were kind of uh, closed down or at least maxed out but but so it was about 18 months i would say probably an average deal is anywhere from uh, 8 to 14 somewhere around in there cool um yeah that's big news Blake, anything, any new developments uh, as far as you're concerned in the practice on the IR side? No, just been moving forward. Um, you know, case mix and volumes still steady. Um, we've added some new partners to the practice since we last talked. We now have two more vascular surgeons. Um, we still have four uh, interventional cardiologists, so that's been good, bringing them on board um, and just trying to maximize you know, our volume as well as uh, patient care. And you're still the lone IR in the group? I am. I'm still the lone ranger in the interventional <laughs> space. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. That's probably going to come to a change here pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. So in the practice, obviously, you know, Blake Blake makes 100% of the call on when he's ready to expand that, that service line. So, I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, he'll make that call when he's, when he's ready to do that. So That's it's kind of his, his call. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about reimbursement cuts. You know, anybody who is a member of OEIS or even SIR, I mean, we see a lot of chatter about it on, on forums and we hear about this, but uh, as I was talking to a couple of our audience members, I think there's a lot of kind of murkiness and, you know, about, you know, what are the facts? Like what, you know, you hear these rumors, but nobody really, is there a real good source to find out exactly what's going on? Do you guys know of a good source? And if so, please share and also just kind of give us an idea of what happened maybe last year and what we can expect this year. Yeah, I'll make a run at that. So, I mean, the, the, so we're able to, to get better sources with, with obviously with uh, capital and lobbying now. So, I mean, it's, it's a little easier with that. I think that, um, yeah. you know, the reality of, of what's happened in 2022 is there's been a, you know, 12.8% reduction in the OBL space. Uh, on on the codes, I think not all the codes got cut, but that was PAD focused, and we'll talk about embolization a little bit on the IR in the IR world where you know those didn't get touched a lot. Kyphos got hit a little bit, but uh, but overall twelve point eight percent to decrease, and and what we pretty much see coming down the pike, which I I don't tend to doubt with the resources that we have, is is an eight point five percent decrease in twenty three. 6.6% decrease in 24 and 25 and a 2% de decrease in 26. So if you wow. add those up, uh, there's your damage and, um, it's not, uh, it's not good. Uh, so I think that those are, those are what you're looking at if you're in an OBL in 2026, which, you know, most of these guys, I'll probably be dead, Aaron, but most of these guys <laughs> will be still hanging out. So. Uh, but yeah, so I think it's, it's very, I mean, so, so glad that you asked us to, to, you know, kind of try to help with the topic, a uh, great topic as usual on back table. Uh, but I think it's, it's, I think it's real and I think it's, uh, I think it's coming down the pike and I think that it's, it's, it's worth talking about at least having that flexibility to switch, you know, the ASC rates we know for, 
that same from that same sources that those will increase in 20 to from 22 to 26 two percent per year oh. uh and so those have already had a increase rate of more than two percent on a lot of pad codes but two percent going forward to 2026 which definitely makes up and gets you back above where your initial obl rates were okay because the increases i'm telling you about is without the pro fee so that's an additional anywhere from 600 to 900 dollars on top of the amount that's that's raised at the two percent level so interesting and just a reminder of the audience uh, who may not know you know you guys your practice is unique you have it's multi uh specialty you have ir vascular surgery ic all under the same roof and you have both obl and asc uh, working and it, it remind me is that different days of the week or do you have a, them both running simultaneously on same days of the week yeah correct it's different days of the week so it has to be open in that entity for 24 hours so we have our setup to it's a uh, obl two days during the week and that's monday through friday technically saturday if we wanted to could be as well but and then the asc is three days uh, during monday through friday so okay and then Blake, anything to add to what Jim was saying in terms of like what, what we've seen and what we're expecting? No, I think the writing's on the wall. I mean, as most people have seen already this year with changes, and we can get more in, in depth in that, but changes just to, especially in the PAD world, um, if you've got a heavy PAD OBL practice, I mean, these are definitely things you're going to have to look at. Iliacs, you know, treatment of iliac arteries has already significantly changed. Um, there's a significant reimbursement difference in the ASC versus the OBL if you're doing a, you know, just doing an iliac intervention on its own. Uh, even tibial artery interventions, if you're just in there doing small vessel work only, there's a pretty significant difference. SFA pop is still, you're probably best doing it in the OBL, but that margin is narrowing. Um, and if you're doing multi-level, it's pretty, it's almost a wash. So, but we'll get, we can get more, more in depth on that too. Yeah. So I, I told you guys before, you know, the way I wanted to structure this episode is I took in a lot of questions from our OBL slash AC audience, a mix up of uh, IRs, mostly IRs, and then some vascular surgeons out there in the community. So I'm just going to kind of jump into some of their questions since they're very, they're very targeted questions that uh, affect all, probably all of us. First one is Preston Smith. You know, Preston wanted to know, even though PAD can reimburse for a lot, I would be interested to hear what they're, they're, they've generated per case, EMBO versus PAD. I think it's getting close to even, unless you do an atherectomy on multiple levels, not to mention drug looting or drug coded anything. He said that he also wants to see how you guys are being more efficient with room turnover and holding bay since your volumes are so good on a day-to-day. -day. Blake, do you want to try and answer that from Preston? On the turnover, you know, that's, it's kind of depends on, a lot of it's on your hiring, your staff, right? So you've got to have great staff that's like-minded and they understand the, the mission and getting patients through and high quality turnover, quick, you know, quick turnover rates. And then we are a little limited on our, how many bays we have, because we didn't, we, you know, each patient has their own individual room that they pre and post-op in the same room at our facility. So um, a lot of it with us being able to do our pedal approach is that these patients are out, uh, you know, within an hour and a half to two hours after their procedure instead of being in there for four to six. So um, that definitely helps with our turnover rates. Um, you know, 
Jim and I are usually doing cases or PAD cases on the same day, and we'll run through, I don't know, 12 to 15 cases total together in a day in our space. Um, and that's just with eight bays. So you can you can see right there the efficiencies of uh, having a quality staff for turnover, um, as well as being able to get these patients out quicker from our uh, our approach through the ankle. Great. What we did from from some of the questions that we were sent, and and Preston specifically, uh, I think that you know we looked at you know it all kind of depends if it's an all you know what your group is made of, right? I mean, if the I if it's all IR. And, you know, you've got a good market for kyphos and, uh, and embolization codes, you know, UFIs or PAEs, then at this point, market, market those to death and, and you'll do well. But there's no question in my mind that the embolization code eventually is going to follow, you know, the, 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 uh, P, the PAD codes uh, eventually just because hospitals, you know, all the hospital associations, everybody else that's putting pressure on the on on Washington. So I think that, you know, at the end of the day, those things are important uh, to kind of see where you're at right now. If you have a heavy PAD IR group and and they and they also do have that skill set to do all those other things, then then you know we looked at like a PAE net number after after supply cost of around seventy three hundred. We looked at Eufy's uh, um, at an average uh, net cost after product of about um, sixty seven hundred, and then you know in our PADs you know range anywhere depending on if you're doing one level or multi level you know they'll range from eight to you know fourteen thousand. So those are the kind of numbers that differ. I think that may answer Preston's question. Uh, but, yeah. but again, it depends on your, the makeup of your group and your marketing and everything. So I think those are, those are important numbers, but we did a very deep dive on, on, on that question specifically. Yeah. So a, a recurring question is kind of, is basically, are we being, are you guys being pushed to an ASC model because of this? I mean, are, are you guys going to make changes based off of these, like the forecasted cuts where more days of the week are going to be ASC versus OBL? Yeah, I mean, Blake, Blake would jump in here too in a minute, but I think that, you know, we're, we're adding on another 9,200 square foot in the surgery center to be, a, it'll be a total of about 19,000 square foot uh, hybrid model. Yeah. But what, what that allows you to do is, is to continue to do your diagnostic and planning angiograms uh, if it, you know, if you don't have a CTA or whatever, and uh, in the OBL space, because the surgery center space doesn't pay for those right now. Uh, diagnostics anyway on the arterial side. So I think that, but, but what it does allow you to do is you don't have to wait till the next week to do the intervention. Now you can just pop it the next day in the surgery center. So the flexibility you have with that model is gigantic. Do you move to four and one? Maybe, but with the flexibility of the ad, of the space we have and, and the ability to do it in either space and still come out uh, very good uh, after product costs and FTE costs, probably we would just be able to give our patients better, more efficient care, like even the next day after diagnostic, or if they come with a CTA, then we, and, and, it, and it's a multiple intervention, then we could do one one day, one the next, or you do them both the same day, depending on the nature of the disease, uh, whether it's uh, limb threatening or not. And obviously this is practice specific, right? I mean, if you're a right. practice that's 
much heavier embo, well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but if you're heavier PAD, like we probably are compared to the embo side, then yeah. Now remember, this is also Medicare, so it also depends on what your practice makeup of your insured is. Um, which obviously on the PAD side, most of them are going to be Medicare, Medicare, you know, supplement plans. So it's going to follow that trend. But if you do have a high volume of uh, private insurance, you know, that they take, they're going to change eventually, but it's on a lag. So, And again, the commercials, Aaron, the commercial payers are going to drive, eventually drive these cases out of the hospital. So they're yeah. going to be, they're going to be at the table with us. And hopefully with us on a platform, you know, a scalable platform. That's why that's one of the main reasons, you know, we did what we did is because we'll have scale and have the ability to be at the table for, you know, negotiations for those uh, bundles on on cases. So I mean, that's you, it's just hard to do that as a one man show. For Almost sure. impossible. Yeah, Lincoln Patel wanted to know since we were talking about different payers, are there any services that can be changed to cash? Or is it just way too, are these just way too expensive? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a rate limiting factor, right? I mean, because of your costs and overhead, even an EMBO case, which would be the cheaper of the two, is still going to run a patient. If you're giving them even Medicare rate, you're looking at over over 8,000 in Oklahoma. So there's just not a lot of patients that are willing to do a, you know, pay that. Now, there are some, and we do have people that do prostates because uh, they'll have United who won't pay for it. And they just say, oh, well, I'll just pay cash for the procedure. And, and they do. But by far and away, most people are going to always try to lean on their insurance then versus paying cash for it. And our, our, you know, our prices are very transparent on a lot of sites. And I think that at the end of the day, we, we have medical tourism, you know, significant number of cases per year that are medical tourism because they'll just, uh, either have too high of a deductible plan or they, or they got sick of it and they're just running their own, you know, plan themselves. But we have a lot of cash pay. I've had, I've done three endovascular repair of abdominal aortic aneurysms percutaneously in the space, uh, all from uh, South America. So cash. Wow. So. Wow. Speaking of support, uh, you mentioned the private payers, but has industry helped support the cause? And like, you know, are they at the table with you or they have their own sort of political action committees going on? Have you seen any efforts on the part of industry? Well, Aaron, they all say they have a PAC. So, you know, I, I think they do spend a lot of money on it. I haven't seen the <laughs> checks myself, but, uh, but they all have, they all supposedly have a PAC and they're all quote helping us. But at the same time, we got hit 12.8% this year. So maybe right. that number would have been 20 without them. I don't know. But we need more help from industry, no question about it. I mean, they're the benefits beneficiary of this space by a long shot, and uh, I would I would encourage industry to 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 do better, like we all can do better. Yeah, got it. So, Tim Yates wants to know: Are the cuts because of all the bad players out there? How do you guys feel about that? Like, what do you think? It's it's bad players and overuse, or is it just? This is the way healthcare is nowadays. Yeah, so there's there's definitely bad players, and and I think that those that's a reason to again to partner up and and be together with like minds and like practices. I think that uh, those those bad players have caused us trouble. But even if you're all if you have all the good players together, there's just a lot more of those codes going to CMS, and they're and by just pure numbers, they're being flagged. 
Yeah. But what they don't do in, in Washington is they don't take into consideration how much money that it, that has saved the system by not going to the hospital. They're just looking at, hey, man, these guys are overusing these codes. And so there's there's definitely not a fair playing field, where, where, which is where lo- the lobbying would come in to try to explain what's really going on, is that we're moving this to another lower cost center with a great patient care model. but And look how much money we're saving the overall system. But yes, there are bad players and we need to police those stringently. And are we seeing the bad players? I mean, we know they exist in PAD without naming any names, but are we seeing the beginning of that in any way on the embolization side, Blake? Well, I think there's already definitely some out there without naming names that are, you know, probably already doing things that aren't technically FDA approved and putting them through. And the problem is that almost kind of polices itself because it's not FDA approved and you're out charging Medicare a bunch. At some point, they're going to audit themselves and go back and ask for their money back, right? But yeah, there's just far less IRs doing EMBOs than there are IR cardiology and vascular surgery doing PAD, right? And a lot of it comes down to a volume thing. So there's just not a lot of Medicare dollars going out on the EMBO side. And that's why we haven't really seen any cuts. But to Jim's point earlier, it will happen at some point because that that's going to increase as we keep coming up with new procedures. We're doing embos right as prostate becomes more popular, um, as knee start you know geniculate becomes more popular, comes out there and gets approved. So we're going to see more and more of it, and at some point it's going to come on the radar. But harder to discern, I guess, at this point, just from volume. I would agree. Yeah, Franklin Yao, he's a vascular surgeon here in Dallas, and uh, he wanted to know. Should a doc create more of a, a niche practice like like John Lippman, where he's just focused on what you know UFIs or women's you know interventions, or or diversify? Because it's hard to like his point was it's hard to go out and say, hey, I um, I offer procedure A and not procedure B um, because B loses money. And he was thinking, well, you know, maybe tailoring it just to one thing, being an expert at one thing. Um, any, any input on that? I think, uh, if you're looking at it, like you're looking at your investments and in stocks, I would probably diversify because if all of a sudden something takes a hit and that's what your entire practice is made up of, then you're screwed right now on a yeah. marketing side, it's much easier to market one thing than it is to market 50 things. Right. I mean, as IRs, we see that all the time, right? You're trying to explain to everybody what the heck you do for a living and all the different things you do. So. That part definitely makes sense and money spent on marketing. I guess your question is if you ever have a year where they take another 12% or more and it's in the only thing that you do, what happens to your business model? Yeah. And it's also, you know, it streamlines the whole practice, right? So if you only do UFIs and you only have certain products you have to keep on the shelf, sure. you only have to write costs so, change. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it decreases but, your overhead. But, you know, it was interesting bring that up. Like Payne did that, you know, I mean, there were pain ASCs, you know, everywhere. And then you can't make a pain ASC, you know, profitable, just pain anymore. I mean, it's, it's pretty tough because they took yeah. all the cuts. And so I think it's to, to, to Blake's point, it's, it's, uh, when all your eggs are in one basket, it's a little bit uh, more risky. Yeah. And then this is another sort of more, I guess, IR 
question. You know, David Cohen, he he was asked, he wanted to know if we're, if you guys are thinking about incorporating more IO procedures like Y90, chemo embo, uh, which would diversify the embo practice even more, although that has its own overhead, right? Uh, but I don't know. I forget if you guys delved into that at this point yeah. yet. So in our market, it's a little difficult, just specific to Oklahoma City. We've tried. I mean, that's definitely I'd love to do, but we don't do any uh, IO at our facility. And there's plenty of them that do around the country. And I think it's a great addition because most IO procedures, um, you're also, I mean, that's two embo codes at minimum per patient, right? If you're on your mapping doing an embolization. So it's a profitable uh, procedure to add and, you know, more patients to come through. Plus you're being able to provide these to patients who are sick and uh, immunocompromised in an outpatient setting instead of having to go to the hospital. So it makes sense on that uh, front as well. Um, but I think getting interventional oncology is pretty specific to either the practice or the region, just because those are sometimes hard things to get out of the hospital or to get oncology groups to buy in. Um, but I think it's a great addition for sure. Yeah, so our, our build-on has a hooded pharmacy ready to go for uh, chemo for, for Y90 uh, and everything. So we're, we're, we're building for it in the expansion uh, for Blake and whoever uh, he brings on. And then um, I think the rate limiting step, uh, Blake can speak on this, but a lot of it has to do with tumor board, you know, yeah. uh, at the hospitals and stuff like that. So, you know, all of the, all of the Medoc docs in town are independent and they we have really good relationship with all of them but uh, i think the tumor board's been our rate limiting step at this point uh but uh we we plan on it exploring that heavy and uh trying to uh see how we can help with the outpatient space uh, uh in with that uh particular uh pipeline of business Kavi Devulapali wanted to know are you guys doing anything to optimize enm revenue to kind of help make up for like maybe a creative way to help reduce, you know, bring in more income. Is there anything that can be done in that, in that aspect? It's tough in the independent world on an E&M basis. Yeah. It's a, it's a break even pretty much at best because you're having to pay the doc an RVU number or whatever and, and your E&M hardly covers it. So, uh, the, the e and I mean, ancillary testing helps. Uh, we have, we have, uh, two specs, one pet, about 400 nukes a month and about eight full-time ultrasound techs. So that's that's kind of how we do it on the office side. So, yeah. Uh, but it's not based on E&Ms. I mean, E&Ms drive it all, but um, yeah. Hey, it's you're hard to you're just it lucky there. if you're 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 lucky if you're breaking even on E&M basically in the clinic. in the in the non uh, hospital-based E&M system, yes, independent, yeah. yes. Okay. And then kind of along those lines, uh Krishna Manava in Columbus, Ohio, he's a vascular surgeon. He wanted to know, other than, you know, wage, you know, what seems like a waging annual battle against CMS, uh, are there other ways to creatively increase margin? You know, Kavi kind of brought up the ENM as one way. We've talked about diversifying. But like, you know, another kind of recurring question is like, are you going lean anywhere to help kind of make up for it? I mean, we're really aggressive with vendor pricing, obviously. I mean, yeah. we try to leverage volume with that, and we try to leverage disposables against capital uh, any way we can. So we're pay paying a lot less for capital uh, in any in any uh, surgery center that we acquire or build or uh, bolt on or whatever. Uh, we're you know we're leveraging 
disposables against capital, and we're continuously trying to, to negotiate contracts down on product. And then again, we try our best to, to be very involved with all the societies for lobbies and, you know, on the state side and the federal side, uh, it just seems like a lot of our money gets lost in yeah, space. Washington. So yeah. Mary asked about SIRPAC, like how involved should IRs be in SIRPAC? I mean, where have you seen successes on the, on the, on the IR side? Well, I think with all the PACs, right? I mean, all specialties, I mean, we're kind of as physicians are also our own worst enemies, right? Cause we work 80 hours a week and we don't have a lot of time to spend towards it. And, uh, but those are things out there that we probably all ought to be more involved with and, um, making our presence known and, and trying to fight these changes. I mean, there's definitely, we could all do more, um, for sure. Cause as you can see every year, they're, they're not going up in reimbursement on most many things. Right. So yeah. it's a continue trying to cut healthcare costs, but unfortunately they're doing it to the physician's reimbursement. I mean, is it just giving money or like, is there something you can physically do? Like, should we be taking trips to DC? I mean, how, you know, what, what can we do other than just handing over money? That's a good question. I don't know if I'm the most qualified to tell you that, but I mean, obviously the more active you can get, in my own opinion, it seems to be better, right? I mean, we should all probably be more active in being with these groups and then actually making a physical presence, right? They can see all the paid lobbyists all you want and hear about it, but I definitely think a physical presence is, makes a huge difference, right? So I've been involved with that as a resident where we would go and we went to D.C. and you go and you meet with your senators and everybody and, and try to make a presence and make yourself known. And I mean, that's definitely going to help in the cause for sure. Yeah, I think when you're, again, ancient as I am, Aaron, you got, so you have relationships with these senators and stuff. And we try to, we try to nourish those every chance we get. I mean, we bring them by the, the shop and show them, you know, the, the great work we're doing here and the kind of, you know, safe and effective and efficient and low cost, low infection rate centers and that, that, that we have, and that this can be a model for the country. And so we, we, we do, we, every chance we get, we do that locally at the state level with our senators and, uh, us congressmen and, uh, congresswomen. And so we do that. And we also, I, I sit on a couple boards of the vendors that specifically are for PACs. So you can get involved with that and you kind of make the policies on like, what's going to be our goal this year to go try to keep them from, you know, cutting us 40% or whatever. So, I mean, yeah. we, so I think that's a, a good way to do it. And then obviously OEIS is a huge deal to try to be very involved at that level and what Brett's doing. Yeah. I mean, OEIS probably is the go-to society, right? For this sort of thing. I mean, for the outpatient space. No question. Uh, yeah. And and I did ask Brett. Brett had very similar questions as well. And I'm looking forward to going to OEIS. I imagine you guys are going to be there. It's in Vegas in June. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Excited to, excited to see everybody and hang out. And it's been a while. So it, it'll be fun. That's all I. That's all the questions I had, guys. From uh, Thank you to our, our, our audience for the questions. A lot of these guys, prior guests, as you guys know. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're all super into this topic and for, you know, for good reason, right? This is their, this is their business. For many of them, this is their baby, uh, just keeping the lights on. So very, very, everyone's very interested. And I think the thing that 
people want to know as well is just like how to stay up to date on it. I mean, you can keep an eye on the OEIS forum, but it's not always like a regular post. Do you guys have any advice on people just kind of like staying up to date? I mean, maybe we do a quarterly podcast on it where we're just like giving people updates, but any, any ideas from you on like uh, helping people stay informed? Yeah, I think it would be good to have the podcast, you know, right after the changes of the of any uh, legislation where they're demonstrating a, a trend towards, you know, cuts or yeah. or increases in in the surgery center space or whatever, which is twice a year. So yeah. I would encourage that, Aaron, and and I'd be more than happy to to lead on that. But we have all the analytics to to help with that inside the practice now that are uh, uh, you know completely reproducible. So. Yeah, that'd be great. It just I think uh, just to summarize it, right? Just uh, hey, here's what you know. Here's what we know. Here's what we expect. Uh, I think that would be super informative and helpful. Because uh, as you know, there's a lot of people out there that right now are noodling on opening their own space, and they hear this stuff and they get afraid. But we know what a big impact it has for patients. So um, and for the livelihood of physicians, right? Because we're seeing this exodus of docs and out of medicine, techs, nurses, staffing's a real issue right now. Um, have you guys had any issues with, with keeping staff around? Yeah, so we we have not uh, here at this space because I think we've created a really cool place to work. But I think yeah. at the end of the day that our costs have gone up. There's no yeah. question about that because uh, when we do need to hire and when, you know, when you expand and build on this other space, it's going to cost us a little more in FTEs just because uh, the nursing world and RT world is different, right? It's totally different now, but, but they still don't come in, don't come into this space expecting the ridiculous numbers that they, that they've been, you know, they've seen at the hospitals. I think the hospitals are really, really in trouble right now. I think you're seeing the back into the on the on the for-profits not the non-for-profits they'll find a way to make it because they're you know whatever don't get me started but anyway the um the for-profits are are really seeing the tail end of that covid money mismanaged or didn't get enough or whatever you want to say and uh you know the two just the two hard hospitals we built uh, in 2002 2009 they just fired 300 people and Monday they fired seven pulmonary docs, got them off of the off of the ticket. So, you know, when you start firing doctors and you know, there's no more food for the extenders, no more food for the docs. Docs have to pay for their own food. It's only a spiral until you know it's yeah. it's uh, going down. So I think at the end of the day, to your point, uh, this model is going to be very valuable for docs uh, that have any kind of entrepreneurial spirit at all to uh, really, really have a great career and a great life and really enjoy what they're doing and, and, and have great outcomes. Yeah. Well, thank you guys again for coming on the show. Always great having you. And um, Blake, anything else before we finish up? Any final thoughts? No, we just appreciate you having us on as always. Was this our third or fourth time on? So it's, uh, it's yeah. been great. You know, this is a great podcast. Well, I love to listen to it all the time. It's severely educational. Always have great speakers, and uh, we look forward to the next episode. Yeah, I echo that. Uh, really appreciate all the work uh, Aaron puts into this, and I know it's it, uh, it's, it's a ton of work, and it's a um, biweekly part of my life now, which I never thought it would be. I didn't know I, I didn't even know how to find a podcast before Backtable. So that's anyway. True. 
Here I am. <laughs> Flake's like, that's true. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for putting on a great podcast. Ah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That wraps things up. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.